0: I'd ask you to take your Bibles and stand out of respect to God's Word. This book is above every book. We are not over this book, we are under this book. This is the Word of Christ. It's not Microsoft Word. You can play around with Microsoft Word, you can uh, highlight, you can delete. You can cut, you can paste, but not with this book. It's the word of God. That's why we stand. I'd like you to turn to 1 Kings 16, and we'll begin with verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. You you were thinking about this last night, weren't you? You and your wife. No, you weren't. Furthest thing from your mind. You may have been thinking about not who was king in Israel. You may have been thinking about who will be president in November. Well, if you've been thinking that, about that last night, or you're thinking about it now, or you're thinking about it at all, this text is for us. Now Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty two years. That was not a good thing. It may have been under Ahab, it may have been under Ahab that the concept of term limits <laughs> first came up. You say, why would that be? Well look at the next verse. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, and all the kings who were before him were evil. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the first king of the north who set up a counterfeit religion, that would keep him in power, that involved idolatry. He built golden calves, uh, all to keep control. He thought the nation belonged to him. It doesn't belong to him, it belongs to God. Uh, As though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, that he married, now here we go, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal And worship him. This was huge. This was serious. Uh, This foreign woman with foreign gods. uh, Her father is named Ethbaal, which means with Baal, or Baal is king. Baal is not king. Yahweh is king. But Ahab married her and went to serve Baal and worshipped Baal. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah, which was another god, a a wooden symbol, fertility religion, evil, perverse. He also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab, watch this, did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now this gets in 34. In his day... Hael, the Bethelite, built Jericho. Now, why did he, well, why did he, actually the idea is he he rebuilt Jericho, because if you recall, when Joshua went into the land with the people, Jericho went down. Now, I want to show you something that's significant. Flip over with me to Joshua chapter 6, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Go to Joshua 6, keep your finger where we were. This is a Bible church, so we're reading the Bible. Uh, Joshua 6, they march around, you know that story. The walls come down. Look, at 26 of 6. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. Now go back to 1 Kings sixteen thirty four. High Ael got the bid to rebuild Jer- uh, Jericho under Ahab, which Ahab knew was not to be rebuilt. But he was going to rebuild it because he was serving another god, a false god. So Hael built Jericho. He laid his foundations, now watch this, with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Hundreds of years later, the word of God was fulfilled. We ignore God's word to our own grief. 17. This was a bad time in Israel. It was a terrible time. Because you've got a king and his wife who are absolutely out of control. Now Elijah the Tishbite was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord God, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So it didn't rain for three and a half years. There wasn't even dew on the grass. And there was a reason for this, as we'll see in a few minutes. The word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here. Why? Because now you're public enemy number one, and they're going to try and kill you. Go away from here, turn eastward, uh, eastward, and hide yourself by the book Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the book brook Cherith which is east of the Jordan he ate at Chili's for lunch <laughs> and cotton patch for dinner that's not what it says the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he would drink from the brook everything was good ah but then verse 7 it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land we have our comfort zones the Lord gives and the Lord takes away And when he takes away, now we got to trust him for a new supply. So now, God has a new supply. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Rise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. By the way, Sidon, where have we seen that before? Oh, up previously. Uh, Jezebel, who Ahab married, was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. So God says, all right, the ravens, the brook, that's over. I'm going to provide for you another way. Does God ever act strangely to you? Because now what God does is, God says, I want you to go into Jezebel's hometown, and I'm going to take care of you there. In our lives, God works sovereignly, he works strangely, and he works slowly. And watch this. Go to uh, Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and say there, behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Uh, Actually, the Hebrew says, I have commanded a large evangelical foundation there to provide for you, (laughs) and they will give you grants, and no. I have commanded a widow, a widow, really, a widow. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. She was in bad shape. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are the God who cannot lie. The scripture doesn't say, it doesn't say that you don't lie. It says you cannot lie you've never broken your word you've never broken a promise your promises to us never miscarry ever sometimes we have to wait longer than we want to wait but whenever you call us to wait you are worth waiting for the longer we wait the more we struggle to keep hope But the psalmist in 130, who was overwhelmed and in the depths, said, in your word do I hope. Our Father, we're living in troubling times. We're living in frightening times. The foundations are being destroyed on a daily basis. But our eye is on you. As Jehoshaphat said, There is nothing we can do. We are powerless to stop them, but our eyes are upon you. We say that this morning. We look to your word for hope. We look to your word because Elijah lived in times very similar to our times. Encourage us. Give us hope. Help us to relax. Help us to be thankful. Help us not to fear. You've got us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was born and raised in California, but uh, in 1986, Mary and I picked up our three kids and we moved to Arkansas. Um, We'd always wanted to live in a foreign country. (laughs) And after a year of language school... Um, We settled in nicely. No, we had a great four years there. Uh, That was 30 years ago. I was thinking of that this week. 30 years ago, we made that move. And I was thinking back to the circumstances around that move, and I um, was pastoring a a little church, and, uh, you know, the kids were getting in school and all that stuff, and we're settling in, and... I remember I was really starting to do an in-depth study of sections of the Old Testament, that, you know, that I had studied in a seminary, but, man, you had five other classes at the same time. So, I really wanted to go deep. And so, I was spending a lot of time in certain sections of the Old Testament. I, I, another thing I remember is um, becoming familiar with a couple, I'd heard of them, I think, um, In the political world, uh, he was extremely ambitious, but she was even more ambitious than he was, this married couple. Um, He, uh, it's the Bible Belt, so he was religious and, and she actually was too, two different churches they were involved with. But interestingly enough, Uh, every time a biblical or moral issue would come up, they would fight against it with everything they had. Um, They they were liars. They were lawless. Uh, They uh, thought they were above the law, and they seemed to get away with everything. They were crooked in their financial dealings. They got involved in a land deal, and a lot of people uh, were devastated. They got off scot free. Um, And by now, you figured out this married couple who I'm speaking of, and it's very clear that I'm speaking of Ahab and Jezebel. (laughs) And that's who I'm speaking of. I haven't taught this passage in 15 years. I used to teach it a lot, and whenever I would teach this, people would get upset at me. And I had people come up to me, and they were just steaming, or I'd have people, they didn't send me emails, we didn't have email. They'd write me letters. And they were all upset. And they would say, I can't believe you said that about this couple. I said, no, 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 you misunderstood. I, I was in 1 Kings 16 and 17. I was speaking of Ahab and Jezebel. I, I, don't, I never mentioned this. And you know, they always, it was always the same couple they'd bring up. Every single time it was the same couple. And I said, no. I mean, and, and then I would say to them, everything I said about them is in the text. If you read 1 Kings into 2 Kings, Everything. There was a man named Nabal who had his family land, Ahab wanted it, he was grieving that he couldn't have it, she said, I'll get it, and she wound up killing him in a land deal. Everything I said about Ahab and Jezebel is in the text. Now if you see parallels, I can't help that. (laughs) But I'm talking about Ahab and Jezebel. And I would say this, if you're upset by that, you better check your heart and your submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll say that straight to you. You better make sure you're standing on holy ground instead of wicked ground. And you better get all in with Jesus because we're living in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. All over again. That's why Elijah's life was hanging by a thread. Because he stood up and he confronted them. Isn't it interesting that, I mean, if we're really honest, a lot of us feel like our lives are hanging by a thread? Uh, It might be something physical in your life uh, you're dealing with that, you know, chemotherapy, you're involved in all that. That These things happen in life. But what I'm speaking of is we're hanging by a thread in ways that we have never, ever considered before, if we're honest. Uh, uh, quite frankly, a lot of us are very concerned because we feel like democracy is hanging by a thread. Um... We know that the Supreme Court is hanging by a thread. And if that goes, we're in the tyranny. Uh, Freedom of religion, man, they're after that full time. They just went after the Christian colleges in California. And they relented, but they're coming back. Freedom of religion is hanging by a thread. Freedom of speech is hanging by a thread and you know this, and I know it, freedom is hanging by a thread. That's not why we need to look at Elijah and what God did in his life. Uh, In James, you say, well, Elijah was a great prophet. James says he was a man just like us. Just like us. Sure, he was was a man of of God, and he was used by God, but I I tell you, he's fragile like us. He was broken like us. He would get afraid like we would. You seem in a great depression because, uh, because of this woman Jezebel at a certain point, and we won't get into that text this morning, but he was in an absolute depression and he, and he ran. Now he stood up in First Kings 17, but he's running for his life later on. Why? Because of who he was up against. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Let's talk about Jezebel for a minute. In 1 Kings 18.4, Jezebel destroyed the prophets of God. She killed them. In 1 Kings 19, she threatens to kill Elijah within the next 24 hours. In 1 Kings 21, she kills Nabal in a puppet trial in order to get his vineyard to give it to her husband. Um... <clears throat> turn with me here just real quickly to 1 Kings 21.5 this, this kind of explains the whole deal with this couple in the Old Testament 1 Kings 21, five. surely there was no one like Ahab watch this who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel his wife incited him now let's go back to 1 Kings 17 In 16, we've heard that he married this woman who was a Baal worshiper, um, and he built an altar for Baal, and he himself became a Baal worshiper. Now, we don't... What's Baal worship? Years and years ago, I uh, spent several days in the Dallas Seminary Library, and all I did was read about Baal worship. I read uh, doctoral dissertations, I, I, read, um, I read published books, I, I read archaeological stuff, I, I read as much as I could find on Baal worship, because you see it all the way through the Old Testament. I, I, I would uh, I'd give you three snippets on Baal worship. We talk a lot about it, we don't need to, but this will give you a flavor of what Baal worship was and why it was condemned. Number one, Baal worshipers were pro-choice after the baby was born. After the baby was born, uh, that passage in 1634, where it talks about uh, Hiel, who got the contract to rebuild uh, to rebuild Jericho, uh, there's there's among among biblical scholars there's a little difference of opinion as to what happened there. It's possible that his, his children died by the hand of the Lord because he willfully disobeyed God, and instead of giving glory to God and obeying God, um, he was going to build that to the glory of Baal. And there, it was prophesied, and they would have known the prophecy. The other, the other possibility is that because there was, the, there was a God called Baal-Moloch. Uh, there was another king later in the south named Manasseh to show his allegiance to Baal Moloch, uh, they would have these worship services and they would have this large iron, uh, cast iron god. You've seen those Buddhas in China. Uh, This this Baal Moloch would be extended with the hands. They would have a hollowed out cavity. They would build fire two or three days before and that would be a white hot idol And to show your allegiance as the drums pounded and there was all kinds of insanity and there was demonic, just demonic, demonic influence to show your your allegiance, you would take your firstborn baby and throw it into the hands of that white-hot God and your baby would be immolated to show your love for Baal. You see why God hated Baal? You you see why God said have nothing to do with it. So we don't have bail. No, we have Planned Parenthood, and they're bail. They're absolutely bail. They cut up little babies and sell their parts. That's wicked, and God will judge them. You can count on it. Judgment is coming. All judgment's been given to the Son. They can repent and turn to the Lord Jesus and have forgiveness of sins. But apart from that, God's going to make that right. So Baal worshippers were pro-choice after the baby was born. Secondly, Baal worshippers believed that Baal controlled the environment and oversaw climate change. And you're chuckling. And you're chuckling, but that is exactly the truth. Baal was the storm god. They thought he controlled the rain. They worshipped Baal because Baal sent the rain. They would plant the seed in order for their crops to go, they would pray to Baal, and Baal would send the rain. Which is why Elijah shows up and says, Yahweh, God of Israel says, it won't rain. Not only will it not rain, you're not gonna have dew on the grass in your backyard. There's not gonna be a drop of moisture because God made the earth, God sustains the earth, He waters the earth, he waters the mountain with springs from the earth above, from the skies above. God is the one who owns the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We're all concerned about having clean water and taking care, of course, we're supposed to. Romans 8 says the whole creation groans. If you want to read a balanced thing on ecology, read Francis Schaeffer, Pollution and the Death of Man. It's a brilliant statement. It's wise, it's discerning. What we're talking about is a worship of the environment and they worshiped the environment. Number two, Baal worship encouraged rampant sexual immorality, particularly homosexuality and all kinds of perversions that cannot be mentioned here. Uh, Baal worship was very sexual in nature. All the stories of Baal, all the legends were sexual. There was incest. There was, it's about as far as I can go. Everything conceivable and imaginable. I remember being on a plane 20-some years ago. Guy next to me wanted to talk. He, you know, asked me what I did. I told him, "Oh, I go to church. He told me his church. And it uh, became very clear. Didn't, didn't believe the Bible at all. Uh, they were considering ordaining those who we're homosexuals. Had no problem with that. And as we were talking, we were just, you know, we're just. I, I asked, you know, explain this to me. And at a certain point, um, I said, "So what are you going to do when it comes to pedophiles? When that comes up?" He said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "When it comes up, justifying pedophiles' interaction with little kids." He said, "Well, that's horrible." I said, "It's horrible now." But it won't be horrible in 20 years. He said, well, absolutely. We would never. I said, really? Because the arguments that are going to be used are the same arguments you've just given me. And this week, I saw the first published book justifying pedophiles interacting with little children. And the arguments are the ones that have been used for all the other sexual license. Rick Warren. Um, Rick Warren's an interesting guy. He goes places I'd never go. He interacts with people. He has a gift. Um, Rick Warren, I, I I find him. Someone asked me earlier, just doctrinally. I found Rick to be very solid biblically and doctrinally. Uh, I read—Rick didn't tell the story, but someone else told the story of Rick being at a meeting, interestingly enough, for the Clinton Foundation. And he was interacting with people that would not be a part of his church normally. But that's part of Rick's gift. He identifies with people that don't know the Lord, but who really need to know the Lord and have broken hearts and broken lives. And there was a man there who was a spokesperson for one of the homosexual advocacy groups and very militant. And they're there for a couple days. Rick notices the guy. And uh, all of his teeth were missing. He he had been hurt physically, obviously had issues inside. Rick at one point just went up to him and said, "Uh, hey, I'm Rick. Uh, Want to see how you're doing. Man, you got a moment? I'd like to hear your story. Tell me about yourself." They sat down and talked for an hour. Before it was all over, other conversations, Rick Rick had led this man to Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful thing. There are things that are wicked and evil. Uh, The Apostle Paul spent his career trying to kill Christians. He was in the enemy camp, and then Jesus got a hold of him and turned him into the greatest advocate. Uh, Would you flip with me to uh, 2 Timothy 2.24? The 2 Timothy 2.24, there's a word here, and I'm going to tell you this. I think primarily this word is for me, not necessarily you. 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to, do you see that? Be kind to all. Sometimes I have difficulty being kind to those who hold views that I find uh, dishonoring to God. I really have to work on this. It doesn't mean we don't disagree. It doesn't mean we don't have a conversation. But i got to watch my heart, and i got to watch my attitude. And when I'm, I find myself in pe- with people just in stores, whatever, in different lifestyles, I ask the Lord to help me to be gracious. I'm just being honest with you. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Watch this. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. I'm trying to learn that. That was for me. Uh, There are people that are right now held captive by the enemy that the Lord's gonna transfer into his kingdom. So when we interact, we gotta be careful how we interact. Uh, nevertheless, this is wicked stuff, this is evil stuff. It, it seems to me that, let me back up. In 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones, tremendous pastor of um, Westminster Chapel in London, In 1959, he said to his congregation, think about 1959, if you were around. 1959, as far as I'm concerned, the good old days. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones got up and said, we are living in days of exceptional evil. Because you see, he was born in the 1800s. And what he saw happen in his lifetime was staggering to him. It was exceptional evil. He wouldn't believe what we're seeing. He wouldn't believe it. Actually, he would believe it. Um, I I wanna read something from, uh, it's the wrong book, no wonder I couldn't find it. (laughs) Anybody have some espresso? (laughs) I think I need a shot. Ralph Dale, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, Presbyterian pastor, uh, has written on 1 Kings and Ahab. And he makes a statement. Allow me to read it to you. In, in talking about Baal worship and what it entailed and Ahab and Jezebel, he says, this text sobers us with its realism. This is what's real. This is what we're dealing with. And then he goes on and says, how often God's people assess their times, find they are facing cultural decadence, vanishing standards, godless governments, and spiritual compromise, and deduce that things can't get any worse. And our text says helpfully, I think, oh yes, they can. Evil is capable of exponential progress. And have we not seen exponential progress in the last few years? It's been breathtaking how it has accelerated. Uh, He goes on and says this, there may be times when you think Antichrist has moved on to your front porch. Yeah. Because you see, Antichrist, when he comes, will be a man of lawlessness, and we're living in times of lawlessness. Those in the highest places are making laws they have no right to make and they're living above law when everyone else is under law. It's called lawlessness. 1 John 2 says many antichrists have gone out into the world. There have always been little antichrists. Ahab was a little antichrist. We're uh, we're dealing with some little antichrists. But don't ever forget that Jesus is God Almighty and he is most high. He's over all of them. Every single one of them. He raises them up and he sets them down. Isaiah 40. He sets up kings, he removes kings. Daniel 2. You say, Steve, things are changing so fast. Yeah, that's Daniel 2. He changes the times and the seasons. He's behind it. Because he has a prophetic plan for the future. And we're on schedule. And he raises up nations. And he sets them down. And we can't ever forget that. It looks like it's out of control. It's not out of control. It's under control. And he's working. He's working for the glory of his name and the good of his people. We can't ever forget that perspective. But you don't get that watching Fox News. You don't get that listening to talk radio all day long and get your blood pressure so that you got blood shooting out of your ears. (laughs) You got to read the scriptures. You got to read the word of God. And you got to put it in your heart. Be still and know that I am God. So Elijah stands up. This guy comes out of nowhere. So you got Ahab and Jezebel. They think it's their nation. They're lawless. They're doing all this stuff, this unbelievable wickedness. And this guy just shows up. He didn't have a He didn't have a PR guy go in front of him. He didn't have social media. He didn't have anything. This guy just shows up. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He just stood up and delivered the word of God to those in power, and that took guts because, you see, they were killers, and they could have killed him. So much of the Christian life is fighting off fear. To me, it's a huge part of the Christian life. Throughout scripture, fear not, fear not, fear not. Why? There's always something to fear. In these days, so many of us are hesitant to speak. Why? Because we're afraid what might happen if we speak truth. Now we want to speak the truth in love, but you got to speak truth. You cannot be intimidated at work. You cannot be fearful. You have to, when it's appropriate, in right circumstances, like set, like uh, like uh, like setting, uh, wait a minute, Proverbs, like settings of gold in, somebody help me, you know, there's a verse <laughs> in Proverbs, you know the verse. Ah, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. When it's appropriate, when you need to say something, say something. Well, I might lose my job. Well, you might. But where is your trust? Where is your faith? Fear not, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. This is Isaiah 41. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's either true or it isn't. Someone's got to stand. Someone's got to speak up. Someone's got to be salt and light. He spoke up. Ronald Wallace makes a great observation about wicked times and when they're getting exponentially wicked. He says this, and he's speaking of Elijah. For to see Elijah appear so suddenly reminds us that we not, need not despair when we see great movements of evil achieving spectacular success on this earth. For we may be sure that God in unexpected places has already secretly prepared his counter-movement. God has always had his ways of working underground to undermine the stability of evil. God can raise men for his service from nowhere. Therefore, the situation is never hopeless where God is concerned. Whenever evil flourishes, it is always a superficial flourish. For at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there, ready with his man and his movement and his plans to ensure that his own cause will never fail. Uh... It seems like, potentially, our lives are hanging by a thread. We could lose religious freedom. We could lose this. We could lose this. If you homeschool your kids, maybe you won't be able to do it. We don't know. We don't know. But you think about it. If you don't think about it, you should. If you weren't depressed when you walked in here, allow me to help you. (laughs) Because this, folks, this is America. This is reality. This is where we are. But we do not fear. Look at Joshua 6. No, Joshua 1, please. Let's go back to Joshua 1. So leadership has been transferred from Moses to Joshua after 40 years of wandering because of the unbelief of the leadership. Uh, they, remember they sent 12 spies in? and they uh, checked out the land and those 12 spies by the way those 12 spies uh, Moses was told by God I want you to pick a man from each tribe each one a leader among them they were all leaders I think that's numbers 12 so you got 12 guys Moses go around and find your best guy your most spiritual guy okay find the guy who goes to church Sunday morning Sunday night Wednesday night he's always there yeah find that guy So Moses went to each tribe, found the guys, and those guys go into the land. And they come back, and they say, it's a great land, it's abundant, it's incredible, what an amazing land. Ah, but there are giants in the land. You know who the giants were? They were idol worshippers, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, termites, they're all in there. And these people were powerful. And they had walled cities, and they had iron chariots, and there were literal giants, literal giants in the land. And 10 of the 12 come back and say, it's a great land, but there are giants in the land, and we can't take them. Can, can anyone here name any one of the 10? No, but we still name our kids Joshua and Caleb. Because Joshua and Caleb said, the Lord will fight for us. By the way, they had just come out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. God did 10 miracles of his power, which they saw, they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. They didn't even wipe the mud off their sandals. They saw it. They experienced it. They walked across. God took care of them and their little ones and destroyed Pharaoh's army. And these guys, weeks later, are saying, we can't take these Baal worshippers." You know, what, you know what we got to be careful of, folks, is being a practical atheist. In your head, you subscribe to the doctrine, but it's not in your heart, and you live in fear all the time. Jesus said, fear not. Take courage. Look at Joshua. Uh, 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 this, is, this is incredible, taking these guys on. What does is, what is the Lord say to Joshua? This was an unbelievable task. Verse 5 of 1 of Joshua. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. He's with you. He's in front of you. He's behind you. He's on your flanks. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. You you don't just read the verse. You live off the verse. It's either real or it's not real. You've got his presence. He makes a way where there is no way. Are you lacking wisdom this week? Ask him for wisdom. James 1, he said he'll give it to you if you ask him and wait on him and he'll show you. This is what he does. This is the reality of Christianity. And if you don't have that reality, you don't know Christ. So run to him and get all in with him. This is no time to be half hearted, it's going to heat up. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of land, which I swear to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to all law. Be strong and courageous and obey the word of God. And when you don't obey it, confess it immediately. You keep short accounts with the Lord. Eight, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. You keep the word of God in your heart so you have easy access to it. You got some verses that you live off of. That enable you not to fear, but to trust in him. This is what Elijah did. He stood up. Um, I couldn't finish my message the first hour, the first service. And uh, so we're going to go to about three. (laughs) But they're going to bring in Subway sandwiches, so you'll be fine. No, I've cut and pasted a little bit, so we're going to be fine. But... You know, over the summer, um, I've always appreciated the ministry of Oss Guinness. Uh, Oss is now in his 70s. He is a tremendous biblical thinker, uh, interacts, not just in the Christian world. He realized early on that he was not going to be a pastor. He wasn't quite sure what God was going to do with him, but he knew he wasn't going to be a pastor. And he's one of those guys that he's out there. He speaks at major universities, and he's a thinker. He knows the scriptures. as a PhD from Oxford. Solid was mentored by Francis Schaefer. He's part of, part of the Guinness Brewing family. And if you look at the history of that family, there are three strains of the Guinness family. You have the, the ones who stayed with the brewery. You have the ones that went in the banking. And then you got a whole string of them that were pastors and missionaries. Oss Guinness was born in China. And as I was reading his book, Impossible People, which is a reference, what, what is that? That's a reference to a man who lived in the 11th century. It's kind of fascinating, this impossible people. It's impossible to find the reference, but I just found it. He says, why impossible people? The term impossible man was used to describe the 11th century reformer, Peter Damien. Dante placed Damien in the highest circle of paradise as a saint. A thousand years ago, as in our own time, there was little regard for truth or for the integrity and purity of the Christian faith. Nor was there much sense of the gravity of sin, so the church was easygoing. uh, Corruption was rife, and the moral and theological right was pervasive among the clergy and leaders of the church as among ordinary people. Um, Damien called for reform against the most prominent evils. In particular, he attacked the widespread practice of simony, the selling of church positions for money, and the equally widespread acceptance of homosexuality and pedophilia. Among the clergy, he spoke up. His commitment to Jesus was so fierce that he won the reputation for being, and these are hard words to pronounce, he won the reputation of being unmanipulable, undeterrable, unbribable, and in George Orwell's later term of of approval, unclubable. Clubable meaning the ultimate in coercion through comfortable conformity. He refused to stay in the club just to keep his life comfortable. Unquestionably, the term impossible man was ambiguous. It could be taken either as a compliment or an insult. No doubt many of Damien's generation admired him for his stand, just as many hated him for his fervor, and many were frustrated and made uncomfortable by what they saw in his positions. In other words, the same term could express admiration or exasperation, as it will again today. But all of that was irrelevant to Peter Damien. He spoke, wrote, and acted solely with an eye to the audience of one. We make it our ambition, Paul said, whether in the body or out of the body, to please the Lord. He's the only audience. And this guy was living his life before the audience of one. So was Elijah. That's how you need to live. That's how I need to live. We please him. He could not be deterred by their voices. He was faithful to Jesus alone and above all. His faith had a backbone of steel. He was the impossible man. Impossible. Uh, It could be that we're entering days that we have never seen. Um, I read something this week. Someone said we have our Christian brothers and sisters in the Middle East being crucified for Christ and being beheaded for Christ, and we're afraid to stand up and speak against encroaching evil. Fear not, fear not. We need to speak, we need to speak graciously, but we need to speak. Uh, I think one of the voices that God is raising up, and if, if I seem like I'm wandering, I'm not, one of the voices that God raises up suddenly out of nowhere, although he's been around, to me is Os Guinness. I've read Os's awesome stuff for years and years. I've appreciated it. But I, I found out something this week. When, when I read this book, Impossible People, what he's trying to do is prepare Christian people for what's coming. We don't know to what degree it's going to come, and we shouldn't be living in, you know, fear like this all the time. But hard times are coming, so you got to get ready. And that's what this book is about. So, I've read Oz for years, but I found out some stuff this week about him that really made this book have authority and encourage my heart. Uh, Someone interviewed him a number of years ago, and here are some excerpts of the interview about Oss's life. He said, Guinness chronicles a bit of the stuff he's seen, matters that he has alluded to in other books, but never described in detail. His family lived in the midst of a horrible famine in China in the winter of 1943. Oss as a young boy, faced brutal persecution, not unlike his grandparents a generation before, his grandparents in China, who survived the slaughter of the Boxer Rebellion, once escaping by hiding in an attic as they were hunted. The murderous mob thought that one building was haunted, so they didn't burn it, as they did the others, and his grandparents were saved. Living as they did in the era after the spectacular evil rape of Nanking, which was the Japanese plunder of China, and amidst the Maoist repression, can you imagine living in all this? The Guinnesses saw unmitigated horror up close. writes, as the long, slow, silent nightmare unfolded, my brothers, my two brothers died. Weakened by malnutrition and wracked by dysentery, one succumbed among the 5 million dead in the famine and the other among the 20 million victims of the invasion. My younger brother was buried on the eve of our setting out on the long trek on foot to India in safety. That's how this, that's how Os Guinness was raised. Somehow we survived. We made it across China. We made it over the Himalayas. My mother was on the verge of death. I was on the verge of death several times. But we lived to tell the tale as awful as any of my parents had ever experienced. Here's a guy that experienced persecution firsthand. Now, we've got to ask a question because we're going to finish up by making a, common, a couple of observations about when your life is hanging by a thread that will give you hope. But we need to address something and here's what I want to address. Because oftentimes we, still, we tell a story of, uh, Os was delivered. His brothers weren't delivered. Oftentimes we tell wonderful stories of God's deliverance, and God is a great God. But sometimes Christians aren't delivered. Sometimes Christians die as his brothers died. What do we do with that? Why would Os Guinness be spared and his two brothers would die in the persecution? A verse that will help us here is Psalm 139, 16, where God says, David says to the Lord, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. This was before he was born. He was formed in his mother's womb. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book, watch this, they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. What this teaches is staggering. It teaches that the reason you're here today The reason you exist today is that before the foundations of the world, God determined that you would exist. God determined before the foundations of the world the moment of your conception. He determined the moment of your birth. And he has already determined the moment of your death, Hebrews 9. It's appointed for a man once to die, and then comes judgment. Your lifespan is controlled by God. Psalm 31, my times are in your hand. Psalm 138, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. So God has ordained your days on the earth from beginning to end. Because of his grace and mercy and providence, he will sustain you and keep you going, regardless of what you face until your final moment. There will be a moment when you die. There will be a moment when you take your last breath. But your last breath is your best breath. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We live in a secular culture. Secularism teaches this is the only world that there is. Jesus said there's another world. And he will not only carry us through this world until your dying moment, which is fixed by God, but he will carry you on into eternity. May I give you some verses? Psalm 27. This is a Bible church, so we're going to look at the Bible. Did I already say that? Psalm 27. And those Subway sandwiches are almost here hey folks you, you know why I want to give you this if you're hungry I'm going to tell you something you, you need to feed off the word of God because our soul needs food to fight off fear if you're worried about your kids and your grandkids and what's coming you got to know these verses and you got to feed off of them man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God so Tom, Psalm 27 man what if hard time comes? what are we going to do And I guess what I wanted to say to you is his brothers, God had a plan for his brothers in terms of lifespan that was different than Oss's plan. You see, God determines whether we live long or we die early, some die in infancy. God determines that. My life is in his hands. But he'll sustain me. Look at Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Can I ask you that? Who are you afraid of? Somebody at work? Somebody in the government? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? In Isaiah, you know what the Lord said? He said, I shall be your dread. If you fear me, you don't have to fear a man. And I love you. I'm for you. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the gospel. It doesn't matter who my enemies are. I don't need to fear them. I need to fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning to knowledge. The fear of the Lord is clean. Okay. Psalm 28. Huh. This is great. Save your people, verse 9. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Carry them. He's carried you your whole life. Carry them. In Deuteronomy 1, you know what God says? He said, I carried you like a father carries his little boy. I was carrying my little grandson Holden yesterday. We were at the park, and he was—you know—and he, he gets up there, and he puts his little head on my shoulder. I'm just carrying him. He was good. Then his dad came home and jumped up with his dad, and he puts his little head down there. He's good. I carried you like a father carries his little boy. He'll carry you through whatever's coming. Isaiah 46, 2. Give me a second. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and you remnant of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same. Even to your grain years, I will bear you. I have born you. I have carried you. I will bear you. And I will carry you. That's the promise of God. All the days of your life on this earth. Let me give you Psalm 31. These things may really heat up. Okay, look at Psalm 3120. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. Let them conspire against you. You're immortal until your work is done. Uh, look at Psalm forty-eight, fourteen. For such is God, our God, forever and ever. Watch this: He will guide us until death, or literally, He will guide us until forever. Those are some scriptures you can live off of. So let me finish with giving you um, three principles. It may be two, it may be three, it may be four. It depends on how fast this clock goes. Let's start with number one. If your life is hanging by a thread, know that underneath are the everlasting arms. Know it. Deuteronomy 33:27 27 says... The eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. So see, if I take a stand, I might lose my job and that thread will be cut underneath are the everlasting arms. Oh gosh, see, what if this happens a, underneath are the everlasting arms? Oh, by the way, what does he do with his arms? He carries. He carries. All the days of your life, he will carry. He's got something else. If that cord's cut, he's got something else. Second principle, if your life is hanging by a thread, the Lord can weave for you a web of protection. That's what he did for Ahab. That's what he did for Elijah when he went to the brook at Cherith. He hid him. He gave him, he wove for him a web of protection. The, the Huguenots were Christian people in France several hundred years ago who were under incredible persecution. And one of the stories is told that the soldiers were breaking up a late-night meeting, and people were dispersing and running and just trying to not be jailed. And as one man was running, and he was running, and no light, it was dark. He's running, and he's looking for a hiding place, obviously. And he saw an outdoor oven and an outdoor stall, kind of, we'd call it maybe a pizza oven, kind of an igloo, large oven, small opening. Uh, he felt it. it was cold. He just dove in, weaseled his way in, got behind, burrowed back, and started looking out. And as soon he as he was back there, he saw a spider begin to weave a web over the entrance. He could hear the soldiers coming. He could hear their footsteps. They stopped to look to go down this little lane. They came back. The spider's weaving the web. He's weaving the web. And just as he hears the footsteps of the soldier and he sees the soldier glance in, he just glances and then leaves because obviously there's nobody in there because there's a spider web. That's the providence of God. God still works, folks. He knows how to take care of his people. Those same Huguenots in France, some of those people on the coastline, there was a point where they were starving. They were fishermen. They'd been fishermen for generations. Late at night, the word got among believers that there was a school of fish in the harbor on the beach. Quietly, they made their way to the beach, took their nets, and there was a school of fish, and they brought them out by the hundreds in the dead of night, by the hundreds. The older folks said, Never has that school of fish, never has that type of fish ever come into these waters, and they never came in since. But they came in then, because God makes a way where there is no way. Number three, the Lord can send an unexpected and unlikely mercy. No matter where you are, he can send an unexpected and unlikely mercy. So Margaret Laird and her husband, and I'll finish with this were missionaries to remote Africa in the 1930s. They went over. They were a young couple. Uh, Within the first year, she was pregnant. They were excited. The baby was born, and the baby died within a matter of days. They weren't sure why there were no doctors. They were just so remote. Broke their hearts. When they came back to the States on furlough, she consulted with doctors, told them what happened, gave them the symptoms. And the doctor she really trusted said, when you go back, I would make sure that you take a supply. A large supply of oatmeal and you take a large supply of uh, dried prunes uh, something that simple I think could help this and so she did and they went back she had her supply another missionary lady at another post her baby was born and her baby had the first symptoms had the same symptoms as her baby who had died so she goes over takes her oatmeal takes her prunes, tells her what the doctor said, and the lady fed that and used it and actually used it up, and her baby survived. Months later, Margaret Laird gets pregnant, has the baby, and the baby has the symptoms. again, and she's out of oatmeal and prunes. And to top it off, that lady she helped had come by on an errand. And when she heard that her baby was sick and that she didn't have a supply of oatmeal and prunes, she chided her and said, you should have had the foresight to have brought more. Instead of sympathizing, she judged her. And the lady left, and she went into the back bedroom, Margaret did, and wept with a broken heart before God. And she said, God, you know, you know, I tried to do the right thing. I tried to help her, and my baby's going to die. And she's just broken, you can imagine. She hears the sound of a truck out front. She knows her husband will take care of it. She just, she knows they are miners from Portugal who are working in the area. She knows a young man died. He's going to do the funeral service. She can't bring herself to come out. Finally, she puts herself together, walks out, greets them. They're just on their way out. The truck drives off. She is in despair. That truck drives about 100 yards and stops. They put it in reverse, and they come back. And that miner rolls down the window, and he says, Ma'am, this is, I don't know, this is unusual. I felt I had to ask you about it. We, we, get, um, we get crates of provisions every month from our company headquarters. And one of the crates every month that we get has hot chocolate, oatmeal and you know dried prunes and none of the guys like that is there any way you could take that off our hands it doesn't matter where you are it doesn't matter what your need is he is the living God Os Guinness, his parents, had to send him away when he was five. They didn't want to, but because of the persecution, they sent him to another city, to other missionaries. He left, and his dad gave him two flat stones. He kept one in his left pocket, one in his right. The one in the left pocket was his mother's motto, and that that little stone said, please the Lord. The other stone had his dad's motto, and it simply said, found faithful. And that little Os Guinness would touch those stones, and you would think about pleasing the Lord and being found faithful. We're not always found faithful, but He's always faithful. Faithful is He who calls you, and He will bring it to pass. You can trust him. You don't have to fear. He's got you. So go eat a cheeseburger and enjoy life today because Jesus has got you in his hands. We thank you, Lord. We don't have to fear. We thank you for your promises. Encourage us with your word. We ask in your great name. Amen.